Well, good morning again, everybody. Welcome to Third Avenue. Glad that you are here with us this morning to open up God's Word. If, uh, if you're new to Third Avenue, to the church, if this is your first, second, third, fourth, something like that time with us uh, here, a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, just a, a little word of, uh, of explanation, um, if you're not familiar with the way we kind of do things here at Third Avenue. Uh, this is a very normal thing for us to, to, to do, what we're about to do right now, to, for me to stand up here and open up uh, this particular book, the Bible, which we understand to be the Word of God, and uh, spend a good amount of time talking about it and uh, uh, me reading it, explaining it, and then trying to apply it to our lives. Uh, this thing that we do right here with, with uh, you, know, you sitting there listening and me standing up pre- here preaching is something that we call expositional preaching, which is a uh, uh, if you think about it, not that hard to figure out what it means. It just means expositional, means that my aim week in and week out as I'm standing up here is to open up and expose the Word of God to you. So read it, explain it, explain how this fits with this, explain what the meaning is, and then apply it to our lives. So, so that's what we're doing. Expositional preaching means to expose the Word of God to you. And what results from that, of course, is the even more powerful and important thing, that you are exposed to the power of God's Word. So that's what we're about here at Third Avenue. We uh, organize our entire life as a church and try to organize our entire lives as individual Christians even around the power and the truth of the Word of God. And so uh, each week we open up to a particular passage of Scripture, I'll read it, and then uh, we do some explanation and and application. Uh, The way we do it here at Third Avenue is that we generally make our way through books of the Bible. So uh, at the beginning of a sermon series, we start at the beginning of a book, make our way all the way through that book before we turn to, to another book. Uh, so that's what we've been doing for the last month or so through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Let me invite you, uh, uh, therefore, to take a Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. That's where we're going to be uh, starting, at least today, in our study of this, uh, this particular section of Ecclesiastes. If you are uh, using one of these red pew Bibles... Uh, you will be able to find our text on, beginning on page 558. If you're here this morning and you're not at all familiar with the Bible, let me give you a brief uh, introduction to it so you'll be able to follow along uh, as I'm preaching and, and speaking and teaching today. Uh, the way you'll see that if you turn to page 558 in one of, these, one of these Red Pew Bibles, what you'll see there is that Ecclesiastes is broken up into 12 chapters that are uh, identified by those big numbers there. On 558 and 59, you can see big chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. And then down inside those chapters, you'll see some smaller numbers, not, not the footnotes. You're going to see some footnotes too. But you'll also see along the left-hand edge of the column some numbers that we call verse numbers. That's not because they have anything to do with music. That's just what we've called them historically. I don't exactly know why, but that's the way it works. So if I say something like, look with me at chapter 10, verse 4, that's the way you find where I, where I am. Uh, If we're just hanging out in a certain chapter of Ecclesiastes, like we're going to spend a good amount of time in chapter 10, if I just say, look at verse 3 or look at verse 7, you'll know that our attention is kind of focused on one particular chapter, and you can just go to that particular verse in that chapter. So uh, I say all that because you're going to be super helped this morning, uh, not just by listening to me, but actually by having a Bible that's open on your lap, in your hand, and, you know, your finger kind of moving along with what I'm talking about, because Uh, because what I aim to do is not just give you my thoughts about a particular topic, but talk to you about what the Bible says. And the way you're going to understand that best is by actually looking at what the Bible says. Uh, So uh, take a Bible, turn to page 558, and that's where we're going to be for the morning. This book of Ecclesiastes is one of four books 
of the Old Testament that's known as wisdom books or wisdom literature. It's a little bit hard to pin down exactly what those four books have in common with each other, like why we categorize them as wisdom, because they're kind of doing different things uh, from one another. But the general idea of the four books of wisdom in the Old Testament seems to be that they're trying to teach us what we might call the art of living well in God's creation. That's the phrase I've been using throughout this series. I think it captures well what wisdom literature is trying to do. It's trying to teach you the art of living well in God's creation, right? Now, if you think about that, it, it starts to make sense, right? It's, it's living well in God's creation, right? Because it's, it, it's, it's this world that we live in is God's creation, and therefore it reflects God's mind, and we want to live well, not in some other world, not in some world that's apart from God, not in some world that is, that is atheistic, but in a world that is made by God. And wisdom begins with understanding that he made it. So we want to live well in, in God's creation. Why do we call it an art, though? Why do I say that it's the art of living well in, in God's creation? Why not the science or the logic of living well in God's creation? Well, I, I think if you've been following along through this study of Ecclesiastes, you know why I would use the word art instead of science or logic or something like that. It's because there's no way for us exactly to pin down life in God's creation and say that it works precisely like this if you just set the dials to these particular numbers. If there's anything we've learned through Ecclesiastes, it's, it's something like that, right? There are rhythms and ebbs and flows and twos and fro's all throughout life, through all of its rhythms and patterns, and there's no way exactly to pin that down. So living life well in God's creation is far more of an art than it is a science. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it goes well for you, sometimes it doesn't. But at the end of it, what you can do is look back and see God's handiwork in the whole picture that's been drawn through the years of your life. Somebody once said that, we should understand these wisdom books to be doing creation theology since they start from the principles underlying creation itself and then work up from there to the way we, we ought to live. At any rate, if you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, then you know that this is exactly what the author, the teacher, or the preacher, as he's called, he's been trying to do from the beginning. He's talking about the rhythms and patterns of God's world, the way that it reflects God's mind, and then he's been trying to teach us, based on those principles, how to live well in this world that God has made. So you might remember, starting back in Chapter 1, he began the whole book with this observation that human life is, is a mist, it's a, it's a vapor, it's here one minute, it's gone the next, it's impossible to, to sort of grab and put in your pocket as a kind of lasting permanent legacy, and therefore it's futile, it's, it's foolish to try to live this life and use this life to build monuments and legacies to yourself. In the end, we're all going to die, and all the monuments and legacies we strove so hard to build for ourselves through these Short years of life are going to sink into the sands. But what the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants you to understand is that that realization doesn't lead us to some kind of you know, dark, hopeless nihilism. That's not what it does. It leads us instead, once we understand the ephemerality of life, it leads us rather to an ability to live and enjoy life for what it really is. I've been given a, a short time on this earth, 80 some odd, 90 some odd, 100 some odd years if things go really well for me. And what I ought to do is not torture those 80, 90, 100 years of life trying to get them to give me something they were never meant to give, but rather enjoy them for what they really are. They're a gift from God, meant to be lived and enjoyed so that he's glorified. That was the first point that he made in chapters 1 and 2. From, from there, through the next few chapters, he gave us a series of other lessons about how to live well. You, you probably remember them. Remember God's providence. Remember God's judgment. Live for others. Live humbly before God. 
Live in the joy of God and in the shadow of the grave. Live in reliance on God. And then we saw last week how he was teaching us how to think about and confront the evil that is so rampant in the world and the death that seems to reign supreme over all humanity. How do you think about evil? How do you think about death? That's what we talked about last week. Well, today in this next section that runs from really kind of the end of chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10 and on a little bit into chapter 11, the, the teacher... The Ecclesiastes, that's where the name of the book comes from. The teacher turns to the topic of wisdom. Now, I don't think that's all that surprising, that near the end of the book, as he's winding it up, coming to the end, he turns back to wisdom because this is, in fact, a wisdom book. And so it's not surprising that he wants to talk about it a little bit. But I do think it's a little surprising what he ends up saying about wisdom. Because I think most of the time, when we come to a book like this, something that's got the name Wisdom Literature, we expect for teachers of wisdom, like this, like this king of Israel who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, just to praise wisdom to the skies, right? That's what we expect. We expect them to say, seek after wisdom, for she is more precious than gold or silver. More precious than diamonds is wisdom, and she will never, ever, 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 ever let you down, or something. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes, this guy who devoted his entire life to the pursuit of wisdom and put all the resources of kingship behind his pursuit of wisdom, when he comes to talk about wisdom itself, he's just more like, meh. Oh, yeah, sure, wisdom's, wisdom's it's good. It, it's fine, but it's not everything. So let's not get carried away. And really, that's what he ends up saying. So, so that's what you get to see. In this section, this sort of, you know, almost two chapters of Ecclesiastes, you get to see the, the teacher talking about an appreciation of wisdom, but it's an appreciation of wisdom that's attenuated. It's, it's thinned out, I think, by the realities of life. But if you go a level deeper and think about even that point, the reality is that that precise, realistic view of the limits of even wisdom itself turns out to be its own form of wisdom. So let's read it. We're going to begin in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13. Here's what the teacher says. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and by his wisdom he delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, and so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, 
and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your, feast, your, your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what, may dis what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I think there's, there's nothing too terribly difficult about this passage, except that it has so many different parts. I think what you've got here from in what I read, is essentially six different sections of, of thought, all exploring the value and limits of wisdom. So let me tell you what those are. You're going to want to write these down because I'm going to refer back to them uh, at various points. Or you can even just take, your, take a pen in your own Bible and mark these sections out. Here they are, the, the six sections of this, uh, this portion of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 9, verses 13 to 18, that's one section, you've got this story of this powerful king who was unwitted or outwitted by a poor wise man. But then, despite that wise man's victory, the wise man is quickly forgotten. That's, what, that's what's going on in 9, 13 to 18. We'll talk about that more later. Second section in 10, 1 to 4 is a poem about the difference between the wise and the foolish. In verses 5 to 7, this is the third one. 5 to 7 of chapter 10 seem to be making the point that for all its value... For all its goodness, people still seem to prefer foolishness over wisdom, even kings. Then fourth, you've got a longer section from chapter 10, verse 8, down through verse 15, making the point that, again, it's a point that he's made several times, but he's making the point again that life is utterly unpredictable, and it's only a fool who thinks he knows what life is going to bring. The fifth section is in verses 16 to 20 of chapter 10, the last part there. It's another poem about the consequences of having a foolish ruler. And then lastly, the, the, the last section there from chapter 11, verse 1 down through 6, you've got a poem, another one, saying yet again that we don't know what's going to happen in life, we can't control what's going to happen in life, so we might as well live life with everything we've got. So you got it? Those are the, those are the six sections. I'll just, I'll just mention the verses again, not, not what they're about. 9, 13 to 18, that's section 1. 10, 1 to 4. 10, 5 to 7, 10, 8 to 15, 10, 16 to 20, 
and then 11, 1 to 6. Now, some of you are a little afraid because normally what we might do is just have six points to the sermon, right? Each, one point in the sermon for each section of the text and think about each one of those. We, we might have done that at a, at a different point, but we're not going to do that today. Instead, we're going to have two points to the sermon. And it's not that we're going to leave out four of these because I just didn't find them interesting or something like that. What we're going to do is that in the first point of, of the sermon today, we're going to be kind of stepping through these six things uh, fairly quickly and seeing what we can learn from them. In the second point, though, I want to do something a little bit unusual, and that is sort of zoom the camera out, pan across this, this whole thing, and take a kind of wide-angle look at this whole idea of wisdom, what it means at its deepest level. So let me give you a main idea, first of all, of, uh, uh, of this particular section of Ecclesiastes, 9.13 to 11.6. The main idea, I think, is wisdom's greatest value is teaching you how to live well. Wisdom's greatest value is teaching you how to live well, which is ultimately to lead you to the God of wisdom himself. Wisdom's greatest value is in teaching you how to live well, which is ultimately to lead you to the God of wisdom himself. So here are the two points of the sermon. You can, you can write them down. Number one, what wisdom teaches. That's where we're going to kind of step through the text and see what it teaches. And then number two, we're going to pan out, zoom back, and see the deepest meaning of wisdom. So one, what wisdom teaches, and two, the deepest meaning of wisdom. So point number one, what wisdom teaches. In the last section, the teacher of Ecclesiastes had been, te- had been teaching and thinking about the reality of death. He's basically marveling at the fact that death comes to us all, no matter whether we're rich or poor, high or low, powerful or powerless. He comes to the conclusion that death comes to us all. And what that leads him to is the understanding that if that's true, then we ought not to spend our days fretting about the fact that death is coming and that the waters are going to close over us and eventually nobody's going to remember us. Rather, we ought to enjoy life while we have it. And the more I thought about it, the more it seems to me that that fretting about the fact that you're going to die and that the waves are going to close over you is a little bit like getting into, you know, the first couple of days of a, a vacation at the beach or wherever you like to go, and starting to fret and living in sadness and angst because your vacation is going to end someday, right? I've only got four days left of my vacation, and so I'm very sad and angsty about that, rather than enjoying the beach. Well, I think that's very similar to the message that the teacher has been telling us from the very beginning. Your life is short, and it's a gift from God, and you should praise him that you've got it, and you should enjoy it, not spend all your time fretting and being angsty about the fact that it's going to end someday. Enjoy it while you've got it. Well, he ended the last section in verses, well, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, with this observation that that anyway, there's no way to control death. No matter how much you fret about it, no matter how much you worry about it, and how much angst you give to it, the fact is you can't wrestle death down and master it. It comes like a net closing around a fish unexpectedly and uncontrollably. It's similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That by worrying, you can't, you can't add a single span to the length of your life. You can't turn one hair gray or brown on your, hair, on the, on your head by worrying about it. Death comes unexpectedly and uncontrollably, and you can't master it. Well, the thought that you can't master death, that it's, it's coming and it's uncontrollable and it's going to happen to all of us, and, and there's no way to sort of work it out so that it happens exactly like we want to, that thought leads him into this meditation on the relative merits and limits of wisdom. And his question is sort of, okay, I, I am a wise man. I've spent my life in pursuit of wisdom. If wisdom even can't stop the march of death, 
If even wisdom can't wrestle down the Leviathan of death, then what good is it really? And the answer he gives to that question is some. It's some good. So if you think about those six sections, I think you can divide them in half, like three and three. If you've got all six of them lined up, I think, I think you can divide them three and three and see two big points that the teacher wants to make. The first point having to do with the first three, second point having to do with the second three. So here's the first one having to do with those first three sections. Wisdom is something, but it's not everything. Wisdom is something, but it's not everything. So that's dealing with the first three sections that I gave you. So everything from chapter 9, 13, down through chapter 10, 7. Well, he starts in 9, 13 to 18, telling this story of this, this powerful king. It's a, it's a good story. There's nothing entirely unexpected about it. Powerful king comes to besiege a little city. The city doesn't have an army. It doesn't have many men in it. And he, he rings the city with his siege works, like, even to the point that uh, the word that's used in the Hebrew there is something like a net, right? So he's got this city caught in the net of his siege works. But in the nick of time, verse 15 of chapter 9, this This poor man, unexpected hero of the story, comes with a wise plan and concocts some kind of plan to save the city from this powerful king. The teacher doesn't tell us what the plan is. He's not interested in that, though probably would have made a good story, but it's a classic story, right? you got a poor man, somebody who's unexpected. Normally you would expect the big, the, the big plan, the thing that saves the city, to come from somebody who's rich and powerful, but it doesn't here. It comes from a poor man. And he unexpectedly uses not weapons, not some strategy, but he uses wisdom to defeat a powerful king. Nothing, nothing at all unusual about that. It's sort of the classic pen is mightier than the sword kind of thing. But look at the very next sentence there in chapter 9. The very next sentence, the very last sentence of verse 15. Yet no one remembered that poor man. No. Well, that's a... That's a sad ending. I mean, I mean, if you were writing a children's book about this, about this story, you would say, you know, city is under siege, powerful king, evil, you know, poor, poor man comes up with, with plan to use wisdom to save the, the, the city, and they all lived happily ever after. You wouldn't end your children's book with, yet no one remembered that poor man. And the same kind of thing happens in the next few verses, too. Look at verse 16. He starts out by extolling the virtue of wisdom. I say that wisdom is better than might. But then he tempers it. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Look at 17, 18. He does the same thing. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But in the end, it doesn't take a whole lot to destroy what good wisdom has done. You see what he's doing there? You see how he's, you see how he's, he's, he's working this, this idea? He gives wisdom her due, right? He says there's some value in wisdom. Wisdom is, is good. But in the end, he recognizes that even wisdom has its limits. People aren't going to hear it. They'll undo its work in an instant. Then they'll forget those who were wise in the first place. You got this same idea through the first few verses of chapter 10. Verses 1 to 4 are a poem. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4 are a poem pointing out the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. And and also pointing out another of wisdom's limits. So if you look at verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. That's, that's not making a political statement, though you Republicans in the congregation can have a ball with that. 
It's just all it's doing is saying that the hearts of the wise and the foolish are inclined in utterly opposite ways. It would have been the same thing if he had said one is inclined to the east and the other to the west or the north and the south. It's just, it's just saying if, you, if you've got a wise heart, that heart is going to be inclined in an utterly opposite way from the heart of the foolish person. And three and four is just offering up this old observation that fools tend to let their foolishness be known, right? So my grandmother used to tell me it's better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. But look at verse 1. Look at verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. In the same way, a little foolishness outweighs wisdom and honor. Do you see see what he's saying? Another limit of wisdom is that just a little bit of foolishness can easily outweigh wisdom. Like dead flies in a jar of perfume can make the whole thing stink. And then look at 5 to 7. He does this sometimes. The teacher does this occasionally where he'll, he'll, he'll actually use wealth and riches as a stand-in for wisdom. He doesn't do that all the time. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite. But here, he's letting riches stand as a, a sort of substitute for, for wisdom. And what he's saying there, if you read 5 to 7, uh, is that for all its value, kings are still going to elevate those who are fools and ignore those who are wise. That's what he's doing. So, so you see what he's you see what he's doing with these, with these three sections of the text? He's saying that wisdom is something. It is. It has some value. It's, it's better than the shouting of a ruler. It's better than weapons of war. But he's also wanting you to understand that even wisdom isn't everything. It has its limits. It's easily undermined. It's often ignored. It wins no lasting honor. The poor man in the city was forgotten. It's something, but it's not everything. I think that's an important lesson for us as Christians to learn. I think if you want to be a person who is wise, it's an important, an important lesson for you to learn as someone who is pursuing wisdom. True wisdom is always, if you are a person of true wisdom, it is always going to be tempered with a strong dose of humility. It's always going to be tempered with a clear-eyed understanding of wisdom's limits and even the value of silence. So look in your own heart. Do you think of yourself as a, a wise and discerning person? Well, here's a question that I think the teacher would ask you. How often do you talk about that? How often do you let people know that? If it's very often, I think the teacher would say, now you're not a person of wisdom at all. The wisdom that you have, the discernment that you ascribe to yourself, does that does that lead you to pride or to humility? Does it lead you to abrasiveness or gentleness? Friend, if the discernment and wisdom that you think you have leads to pride, if it leads you to the belief that you have something helpful to say about everything, then the teacher would tell you that you have gotten a hold of something much different from wisdom. That's the first point he makes. Wisdom is something, but it's not everything. Second point he makes in the, the next three sections of this that we've talked about. Second point he makes is about, what, uh, is about what, what wisdom teaches again, and that is that you don't know what's going to happen in life, so live. It's not an unusual thing for him to say. He said it a couple of times before, but that's, that's what he's saying here in these, 
in these sections. You don't know what's going to happen in life, so live. In other words, go for it. Stop worrying and calculating and trying to solve life's equations for X and wrestle it down to make it give you something that it's not going to give. Just do it, he says. I think that message gets distilled down to its, to its essence in the very last verse of this whole section, verse 6 of chapter 11. Look at that. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. For you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. See what he's saying there? He's saying, don't, don't try to figure out when the best precise time is to sow the seed, right? Don't try to look at the soil over there and figure out exactly which, which plot of soil to throw the seed. Just throw it. Just do it. You, you don't know what seed is going to grow. You don't know what's going to happen. But take action. That's where he eventually gets to. It, it takes him a little time to, to get there, though. We're talking here about the second three sections of those six. So everything from 10 verse 8, chapter 10 verse 8, all the way down through the end, 11 verse 6. And essentially what he's saying is, is, is three things. He wants you to live your life. Live your life. Don't be, don't be hamstrung. Live your life, but don't do it, he says, arrogantly. Don't do it as a fool, and don't do it as a coward. Live your life, but don't do it arrogantly. Those are the three sections, actually, that we're talking about now. Don't do it arrogantly, don't do it as a fool, and don't do it as a coward. Let me show you. Look at the, look at, it's, it's really the fourth section. This is the first one of this, this particular point. Chapter 10, verses 8 to 15. Chapter 10, verses 8 to 15. He starts out in, in verse 8, 9, 10, going on down, starts out by reminding us that even the things that we think we have complete control of can hurt us. So he says, look, you, you may dig pits for a living and be really good at digging pits. You, you may break down walls for a living and be really good at breaking down walls. You may, you may split logs or charm snakes, but in the end, even those very things, the things that you think you've mastered, the things that are providing a living for you are the very things that'll come back and bite you in the end. You just don't know what will happen in life. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how the rhythms of life are going to play out. And so, he says, 12 through 15, it's just foolish to fill up the air with all your words about what is or is going to be. Verse 14, he says it's a fool who multiplies words. He's arrogant. He thinks he's got life by the horns and he tells everybody about it. This is how life works. This is where life is headed. This is what you must do if you want life to, do, to, to be correct, to be good and, and happy. A fool multiplies words. And if you think about it, it's, it's really very similar to what James says in the New Testament, right? Don't be a fool and say, I will do this or that. But no, have some humility and say, I will do this or that if the Lord wills. My friends, listen to the way you talk this week. In your very words and the way you talk about the world, is your speech shot through mainly with arrogance or mainly with humility? Is your speech about the world and about the way life is going to work, is it, is it full of wisdom or is it full of foolishness? His point is live, live, but don't do it arrogantly, thinking that you somehow know the outcome or can create the outcome. You don't and you can't. Well, in verses 16 to 20, he turns to, to think about another point. He says, live, but, but don't live as a fool, right? And he, he talks in, in those verses, 16 to 20, about the consequences of living under a foolish, really childish ruler who also has foolish noblemen. You look at verse 19, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and 
money is the answer to everything. I've got a friend who says that this is his very favorite verse in all the Bible. You can see why, but I, you know, I get it. But sadly, uh, what that is is actually a commentary on the foolish nobleman. You look at the verse right before it, it says that if you've got foolish noblemen and a foolish childish king, what happens is that the roof caves in and the the house is leaking. And then 19 is saying that the reason that's happening is because they made bread for laughter. And they made or bought wine to gladden their hearts. And they used their money to do all of that instead of fixing the roof. The point is, live your life, have fun, enjoy it, but recognize, too, that you have responsibilities in this life, and part of what it means to live wisely and live well in God's Word is taking care of those responsibilities. Yes, live your life. Yes, have fun. It's all a gift from God, but don't have fun to the point of defaulting on the responsibilities God has given you. I mean, every single one of you in here knows how easy it is to look at our responsibilities And then to look at whatever we've been doing and say, okay, I'll get to you, but just one more game, right? One more match, one more chapter, one more episode, one more hour, one more hitting of the snooze button. Well, the thing is, the teacher does give you some room for some of that. He wants you to play the game. He wants you to read the book. He wants you to watch the episode. He wants you to hit the snooze button sometimes. But he also says here, look, don't let the roof cave in either. Live, but don't do it as a fool. Enjoy life, but not to the point that your roof caves in. In chapter 11, 1 through 6, he makes one last point. He says, he says I want you to live not in arrogance, not as a fool, those are the first two, but also not as a coward. Don't, don't live as a coward. His point here is that, look, look you don't know what's going to happen, and, and you can't control it. That's the first thing he says. You can see it in several places. Verse 2, you don't know what disaster is going to come. Verse 5, you don't know what God's doing any more than you know how he breathes the breath of life into an unborn baby. Verse 6, you don't know which of your efforts and investments is going to, going to pan out. You just don't know. You, you just have no idea. And he says you can't control it either. So verse 3, if it's going to rain, it's going to rain. If a tree is going to fall, it's going to fall. And in verse 4, if you sit around watching very carefully and trying to figure out precisely when and how all those things are going to happen so you can find the exact right moment to act when there's no risk to you, well, guess what? You'll never do anything at all. So what do you do instead? He says, he says it there in verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters. Just do it. We don't know exactly what casting bread on the waters means, but... I think the point is pretty clear. It's saying, act, do something. If your intention is to cast some bread on the the water, don't sit around trying to figure out the precise moment to cast the bread up on the water. Just do it. Sow your seed in the morning, he says. Sow your seed in the evening. Don't be locked up in your heart by the fear that maybe this isn't the precise right moment or the right time. That's his point. You're never going to figure out the precise right time. So whatever you're going to do, do it. It's not that you should be rash, right? If you look at verse 2, he's, he's very practical there. Divide your goods when you send them out on ships across the ocean. That's what that means. Put them in seven different ships. Do not put all your goods in one ship because you don't know what's going to happen. Put it in eight. Well, he says seven ships, and he's like, no, 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 eight. You know, he's, he's not rash. He's very practical. But you also shouldn't live, he says, as a coward. I think the irony here, when you, when you read 11, 1 through 6, I think the irony is that Wisdom is so often connected, maybe especially among Christians, with inaction, right? Wisdom is so often connected with inaction. So you'll hear somebody say, look, we need to be 
wise about this. And it means, almost always, we need to not act. But the fact is, sometimes the better part of wisdom is to recognize that life is unpredictable. So yes, you take the necessary precautions, you divide your goods up among eight ships, and then you go for it. You cast your bread upon the waters. I think one way to get your head around this is the the phrase that one uh, commentator used on it, is that the teacher really doesn't have time for defensive living. He really does not have time for defensive living, which would be to be constantly calculating, constantly declining to act, constantly living until the conditions are just right before you'll act in any way. No, what, what the teacher wants you to understand is that you're never going to find a moment like that. You're not in control of it. You can't predict it. You can't control it. And so therefore, trust God and live. Hey, most of you know I've been watching a lot of basketball games with all three of my kids, actually. And I, I notice a lot of patterns in basketball games, but one of, the, one of the most persistent patterns that I've noticed in the game of basketball is that when a team runs out to a little bit of a lead, they begin playing as if not to lose rather than trying to build that lead to 20 or 30. And almost inevitably, what happens when a basketball team starts playing so as not to lose is that they lose. Friends, God doesn't want you to play the Christian life just as if not to lose. He wants you to go for it. The point of the Christian life is is not just to be able to, to hold up a checklist before God at the end and say, look at all those mistakes I didn't make. Now the point is to live your life to the glory of God. Burn yourself up in service to the king. Yes, look around. Yes, take stock. Yes, take precautions when you can. But in the end, recognize you're not in control. You can't predict it. And live to the glory of God. Well, I want to take just a few minutes before we close and and go to the second point, which is is to sort of come out of this particular text and, and pan the camera back uh, to, to think about wisdom as a whole. So that's point number two that I want to talk with you about this morning, the deepest meaning of wisdom. What we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes for, for most of the sermon today is, is just some of what wisdom teaches, right? He's got six little points there, two major points, six minor ones, where he's, he's telling us, look, wisdom is something, but it's not everything, and recognize that you're not in control, and, and go for it after you've taken some precautions. That's some of what wisdom teaches, what the teacher wants us to, to know as we make our way toward the end of his book. But But let's take a step back now and take a wider angle view at this whole idea of wisdom in the Bible. Because in the Bible, wisdom is far more than just sort of fortune cookie tips for living a good life. I think sometimes that's the way we approach wisdom literature, especially Proverbs, right? It just looks like a grab bag of, uh, you know, already cracked open fortune cookies and we can just dig, dig into it and pull one out and see what it says and enjoy it for a minute and then throw it back, right? I think sometimes we try to teach uh, uh, or understand Ecclesiastes that way too, but it sort of throws us every once in a while when it says things like, you know, bread is great and wine is even better and money solves every problem. You know, it just, ah, why is that in the Bible, right? So it throws us a little bit because it's got a little bit more of a storyline and a, a narrative to it. Well, I hope this series of sermons in which we've studied Ecclesiastes has been good and encouraging to you. I hope it's I hope it has, in fact, given you some some good, well, wisdom, right, for living life well in the world that God has has created for us. But I don't want you to go away thinking that Ecclesiastes is just a book about tips for living life well. 
because there's more to it than that. I, I think actually one of the things that, that bothered me as I began studying Ecclesiastes and kind of wrestling through it, trying to find the thread, find the art, right? I, I think it was about two weeks ago, uh, maybe, maybe mostly last week during prep for the sermon, that I finally sort of got a hold of, of the teacher's thread. I found his argument. I saw what he was going to do and was able to kind of trace it without, without, you know, running off the road uh, uh, through the end of the book. But I think one of the things that bothered me as I started wrestling with the book is that so much of what the teacher was saying at first seemed to make sense on its own terms. In other words, so much of what he said made sense and you didn't need God, much less Jesus, in order for it to make sense. And that bothered me. You know, so week one, for instance, I'm preaching about, you know, death being the great equalizer and how that ought to lead us to, you know, let go of trying to build a legacy for ourselves and, and just live life and enjoy it for, for what it is. And, you know, then on Tuesday or Wednesday of the week following, I'd see Conan O'Brien making those very same points in an interview about his show being canceled. And I'd think, wait, is that, I mean, is that, is that really it? And then, you know, a week later, I'd see this guy who just played in the Super Bowl say, you know, in the long run, we're all going to die, so I'm just out here having fun, and that's what matters. And I think, you know, a whole lot of pagans really seem to be getting the message of Ecclesiastes really quickly. <laughs> and it bothered me. And the reason it bothered me is because, so, because the, the whole rest of the Bible, I mean, Ecclesiastes is just different from the rest of the Bible. Because in the rest of the Bible, whether, no matter what you're talking about, the law, the, the prophets, the Psalms, it, it, they, they don't make sense, finally, without Jesus at the end of them, right? They're, each one of them, the, the law, the prophets, the story of David's life, all the rest of it, they're, they're like things that are looking forward, and they're like this arch that's being built up, and in order for the arch not to collapse in on itself and just make absolutely no sense, you have to have the keystone that pops into the top of the arch to, to nail it down, and of course that keystone is the New Testament, Jesus. That's the way the whole rest of the Bible works, and I thought that Ecclesiastes wasn't like that. As I looked at it at first, it looked like a completed arch without Jesus. But as I've studied the book and as I've kind of caught the thread that the author is, is, is running through the entire book. I think I was wrong about that. I think Ecclesiastes is just like the rest of the Bible. I think it's an arch that doesn't make sense, finally, without Christ. Let me try to explain why. I'm going I'm to kind of get a running start at it, so you're not going to see exactly the answer to that question right at the beginning of this. But, but we'll get there. Three things that I want you to understand about wisdom writ large. Three things I want you to understand as we zoom out and look at wisdom writ large in the Bible. First of all, first of all, wisdom teaches us that human experience moves forward in a spiral, not a straight line. Human experience, human life, human history, all of it, it moves forward in a spiral, not in a straight line. And I think that that's wisdom for us. I think that strikes us if we begin to think about it because I think we have a tendency to think that life and indeed human history is sort of a straight line from beginning to end. Right? That's, how we, that's how we tend to think about it. And we often treat even the Bible's story like that. And the fact that we treat the Bible's story as a straight line from beginning to end leads us to think of our own lives that way. You know, so the Bible starts in Eden, moves immediately to Abraham and Moses and David and the exile and return and Jesus and the new creation. But you know, it's done. Eden to, to the new Jerusalem, just like that. 
And when we read the Bible like that, and when we, when we see the, the story of the Bible as being one straight line from Eden to the new creation, it leads us to expect our own lives to be just as straight, right? Birth, sin, salvation, sanctification, glorification. From one right on to the next, straight on to glory. And so, because we think of our lives like that, when things take an unexpected turn, when sanctification doesn't go quite as straight and true as all that, it throws us. But I think one of the things that wisdom, like Ecclesiastes, is trying to teach us is that it shouldn't throw us. I mean, twists and turns, backs and forths are to be expected because by its very nature, life and the whole of creation even in which we live is made up of cycles and spirals. Back and forth, to and fro. The sun rises and sets. The rain falls and the mist rises. And even the story of the Bible isn't as straight as we often think from A to B. And you think about the life of Abraham. When you get down into the details of his life, it wasn't straight at all. Abraham dealt with horrific unbelief in his own life. He dealt with sin in his life. He dealt with setbacks. There were stretches of decades where he didn't hear from God. Same is true of David. And yes, in our, in our minds, in our cartoon of David, he's this you know, shining character with the crown on his head, looking forward to Jesus, and yes, he committed adultery. We got that part down, right? So it's a tarnish on the crown. We understand that, but... But even once you get past the disaster of Bathsheba and everything that came from that that we studied a year ago, David's life wasn't a straight line. It wasn't even a straight line from shepherd boy to king to Bathsheba to Jesus. There were backs and forth cycles and spirals throughout all of David's life. There were, again, years where he didn't exactly know what was going on or what was going to happen to him. And besides that, between Abraham and David, or David and Jesus, think about all the generations of God's people who lived and mourned and laughed and died between those enormous moments. There were thousands of them. And I think the point is that God just obviously is not interested in finishing the work of redemption as quickly and efficiently as possible. He's just not. He's not interested in finishing history as quickly and efficiently as possible. He's not interested in, in finishing his work in you as quickly and efficiently as possible. He's taking his time. Why? Why is he taking his time? I, when I was in college, this was a big question to me. Right? I got challenged by it or on it by a roommate. Why doesn't, why doesn't your God, when he saves people, why does he leave you to suffer and leave you to all this stuff? And I gave some you know, freshman answers, but... It bothered me. Like, why doesn't God just do all of this in an instant? Why did he allow the world to go through this whole thing that it's been through with all the suffering and pain and darkness and all the rest of it? Why does he do that instead of just finishing the whole thing at once, right? Well, I found an answer satisfying to me in Jonathan Edwards. Edwards wrote a book, uh, or actually he never finished it. He was about to write a book near the end of his life called The History of the Work of Redemption. And what he was going to do was actually trace out God's work through all the eons, through the story of the Bible and the story of the church and the story of tradition and history and all the rest. And he was going to try to show the character of God through the work of redemption in, in history. But the very first question that he had to answer was why there's a history in the first place, right? If you're going to do that kind of thing carefully, you've got to ask, why does God do this in the first place? So, so here's, just listen to what he says here, because this was a satisfying answer to me, deeply, deeply satisfying. He, Edward says, 
Okay, I must also briefly answer an inquiry. And that is why the setting up of Christ's kingdom after his death on the cross should be so gradual by so many steps that are so long in accomplishment when God could easily have finished it all at once. And he says, here's the answer. Well, in this way, the glory of God's wisdom in all this is made more visible to our observation. If it were done at once, in an instant, or in a very short time, there would not be opportunity for us to perceive and observe all the particular steps of divine wisdom, as when the work is gradually accomplished, and one effect of his wisdom is held forth to our observation after another. It is wisely determined by God to accomplish his great design by a wonderful and long series of events so that the glory of his wisdom may be displayed in the whole series. For if all that glory that appears in all these events should be shown to us at once, it would be too much for us and more than we could take notice of. It would dazzle our eyes and be too much for our sight. What an incredible answer, right? I mean, I love it. Look, even as you live through all the rhythms and the backs and forths and twos and fros of life, even as you live, part of the purpose for all of that, part of the purpose for the laughter and the suffering, part of the purpose for the mourning and the crying and the laughing and the celebrations, part of the purpose for all of it may be simply so that you can experience it all and in the process of experiencing, marvel at who God is in every instance. The purpose of all of this may be so that you can take in God's excellencies, not all at once, but one at a time as they're held out before your eyes. Now you see his compassion. Now you see his sustaining power. Now you see his grace. Now his mercy. Now his strength. Now his discipline. Now his patience. And you grow to love him far more than if it all just exploded like a fireworks show in front of your eyes. Wisdom teaches us that life's not a straight line, it's a spiral. Second thing that I want you to see about wisdom is that wisdom about the world that God created introduces us to the God of wisdom himself. As we gain knowledge about this world that God has created, we are, we are being introduced to the God of wisdom himself. Here, here's a question I, I wonder if you've ever thought about. Why does, why does the world make sense? Why does the world make sense? I mean, you can go all the way down philosophically to, you know, when, when you know, 400 or others or 500 or whatever it is, when, when we all, you know, sit there and look at this thing right here, you know, why do we all describe that as a pulpit, a white pulpit? You know, why isn't there somebody sitting out there that looks up here and sees pink elephant? Why does the world make sense? Why do your senses work? Why, why are they reliable? You know, I mean, you might even ask it about wisdom. Why, if, the, if wisdom is the art of living well in God's world, why is there such a thing in the first place? Why does wisdom work? Why is there even an art of living well in the world that generally, mostly, leads to good outcomes in that world? And that is not the kind of thing that, that chance puts together. That is not the kind of thing that just you know, laws, as we call them, of cause and effect, cause to, to happen. Now, the reason the world makes sense, the reason wisdom works in the first place is because the patterns and forms and rhythms of the world reflect God's own mind. That's why. I mean, you know that the Bible over and over again says that God planted 
his wisdom into the creation. Proverbs 3.19, the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. See, when God created the world, he created it deliberately with rhythms and patterns and forms that reflect himself. And as you and I grasp and see those patterns and even grasp the fact that there are patterns and forms and rhythms that we can't grasp, that leads us not to arrogance and pride, not to thinking that, that we sit on the throne and can master this earth as if we figured it all out, but to the humble realization that we are, in fact, not in control. That there's something, there's someone, in fact, beyond us. And that true wisdom is to acknowledge him and bow before him and ultimately trust him. That's what wisdom teaches us. Here's the third and last thing. Third and last thing is that wisdom teaches us to look to the king. Wisdom teaches us to look to the king. Have you, have you noticed that wisdom literature in the Bible is always connected to royalty? Always. Wisdom literature is always connected to, to royalty and therefore to humans' capacity and ability to rule God's creation, right? It's really important that the king know well the art of living well in God's world because the way he lives is going to affect the whole rest of the nation. Think about it. I mean, this book of Ecclesiastes was written by a king of Israel. Proverbs was written by King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. So much of Ecclesiastes, as we've seen, is taken up with this theme of, of kingship. And in, in fact, a huge part of the role of the king was to rule with wisdom. But I want you to jump to the end of the book for a minute and look at verse 11 of chapter 12. Verse 11 of chapter 12. He says, the words of the wise are like, he's finishing it up. The words of the wise are like goads and the nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, who's he talking about there? Well, you read the rest of the Bible and you understand that he's talking about himself. He's the king of Israel and therefore he's the shepherd. And one of the things that he was supposed to do, maybe the most important thing he was supposed to do, is shepherd the people of Israel, take care of them. And it would take wisdom to do that. So you read the rest of the Bible and, and what you start to understand is as the Israelites started to look down through time, toward a great king who would come and be greater than any other king, one of the main things that they knew that king would be is unfailingly wise. Isaiah says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. All that is wisdom. All of it is wisdom. But, but think about it. When that Messiah finally came, right, Jesus, when he came, here's the deepest meaning. The deepest meaning of wisdom is right here. The Israelites never imagined exactly what God was, was really planning. Yes, the Messiah, the king, would need to be wise, but they had no idea what they were really saying. And here's why. See, the, the king's job was to be wise and to lead the people with wisdom. But the thing about the king of Israel is that he had to learn that wisdom from outside of himself. He had to learn it from God. And so because God is the source of all wisdom and the God of wisdom himself, the king had to learn wisdom and he was going to get some things wrong and he would lead the people wrong occasionally. Even if he tried really hard to be a wise king, it was all outside of him. But in Jesus... The God of wisdom himself came to sit on the throne. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew chapter 12, there is a wisdom 
that is greater than Solomon that has come. That's why Paul would say that in Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. Not to be dug out of the ground, but to be found in Christ. And, and, and here's the last thing, just briefly. If you want to know true wisdom, like I said in the second, sort of second point, you need to know the God of wisdom himself. And how do you do that? You come to his son. You come to his son, the one who flung open the doors of heaven. The one who invites sinners like you and me, unwise, foolish people, to come into the presence of God through his life and death and resurrection. Let's pray.